Um, last night I was, uh, we, yesterday was a busy day at our house and we were all doing, Sherry was inside all day doing chores and I was outside all day doing chores and we really like each other but we just didn't spend any time at all together yesterday because we were busy doing stuff. And, uh, and it got to be last night, and it was probably about 9.30, and I said, hey, did we ever check the mail today? And she said, I don't know if we did or not. And I said, okay, I'm going to go out and check it. So I go walking out of my uh, house, and I go walking down my driveway to my mailbox. And, and I've already told you all before, I don't like spider webs, right? And I don't like spider webs on me. And uh, no lie, I'm walking, and we've got a crepe myrtle on this side of the driveway, and then we've got some crepe myrtles on this side of the driveway. And I'm walking down, and I literally, I did like this. Like that, because there was a gigantic spider web, and there was a spider that big staring me in the face, and I was that close to having to just strip all my clothes off right there in the driveway, because if I had gotten that thing in that thing, and that spider had gotten on me, I would have gotten naked before I, before I came back in the house, I'm just going to tell you. And so, I, what I want today, what I hope today will be for you is I hope it'll be one of those moments where you think, hey, I'm just kind of chilling, I'm coming to church, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden you have one of those face-to-face moments with God. Because it's so easy week after week for us to come in here and you just think, yeah, that's what I do on Sunday mornings. And then Cliff finally shuts up and then we all go to eat and then we go home and we watch something on TV and then I get up the next morning and go do work again and then I come back and I do that thing again. It's so easy to just think that this is just one other little part of our week. But what is going to happen today, I hope, for each one of you, is you're going to come face to face with God because God's real and he really wants to do stuff in your life. And I want you to walk out of here today excited about who God is and about what he wants to do for you. So today we're going to conclude our... Um, oh, before, before we go on, let me tell you one other thing. Our team that went to Botswana has made it to Africa they're on the ground. If you're not checking that blog out, uh, you can go to my blog uh, site, which is uh, on your newsletter there, and there's a link on my blog to go to the Africa blog, or you can go to freedomfellowshipsc.com, and there's a link over on the left side, on the, on the upcoming events side, uh, that you can link to that blog as well. They're going to update that regularly, and so they have made it yesterday. They spent some time hanging out, saw some baboons, like real baboons, not in a zoo, just walking around, I guess. That happens in Botswana. And, uh, and some other stuff like that going on. And today, they probably will spend all day long in church because people in Africa, they're excited about it. They don't have football, so they've got to be excited about church, I guess. And they spend all day on Sunday in church. And, uh, and then they're going to begin doing some work tomorrow morning. Uh, and not really sure everything they're going to be doing, but going to be doing a lot of stuff. But you can follow that daily on the blog, those four folks. Pray for them every day because they're going to just deal with all kind of issues as far as um, strength issues and, and uh, spiritual warfare and all that kind of stuff, so be praying for them. Well, today we're going to conclude our series that we started a few weeks ago, the Reboot series, and maybe you're wondering, you know, why, Cliff, did you decide to do five weeks of messages where you compare our spiritual lives to a computer? And the reason why I did that was because, first of all, I, I try to think of things that will connect with everybody, and just about everybody uses a computer nowadays. doesn't mean you like it, but just about everybody uses one. And the other thing is, is I started thinking about my lifetime. And I'm wearing a, a Woodstock shirt today, 1969, because I was born in 1969. Somebody asked me if I was at Woodstock. I hope that was somebody that thought Woodstock happened like last year, all right? But uh, no, I was born the year of Woodstock, and in my lifetime, in these 40 years that I've been on this earth, 
Probably nothing has affected our lives and our culture more than computers. I mean, when you really think about it, every aspect of life has either been improved a little bit or made faster or made easier due to computers, not just in people's homes, but in businesses and uh, airports and everything else. And so when you think about a computer, one thing that, that seems to kind of stand out is in the right hands, which that would be someone else's hands other than mine because I don't know much about computers, but you put a computer in the right hands and the, the potential of that machine is almost unlimited. It seems like that you could, whatever you think of, you can figure out a way to make a computer do it and do it easier. And so there's this unlimited potential feeling about computers sometimes in our lives. I want you to know that each one of you have unlimited potential. And we're going to talk about that today. Why is that, that we have this unlimited potential? And today I'm going to do something a little different that I, I don't normally do. We're going to, it's going to be a one-point message. You know, normally when I was in seminary, that's where you go and they try to train you to be a minister. And um, when I was there, a friend of mine, we had a preaching class and a friend of mine was in a, a class and and he wrote a message for his preaching class that had one point. And I kid you not, the professor gave it back to him and said, you can't preach a one-point message. And gave him a C on it, told him to rewrite it, he'd give him an A. Said that all messages had to have at least three or four or five points. Which, you know, so I'm breaking a seminary code here today. We're going to do a one-point message. But what we're going to do is we're going to look in Luke chapter 8 and we're going to look at a story that it's an amazing story about Jesus and something that he did. And these kind of things just seem to happen to Jesus on a daily basis. And so I want you to look at Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 40. Now before I read Luke chapter 8, verse 40, I want you to do one other thing. I want you to think right now, get something in your mind that you think is impossible. And I'm talking about something for you, not, you know, it's impossible for a man to go to Venus or, you know, whatever. I'm not thinking about that. I'm talking about... In your life right now, think about something that right now seems to you to be impossible. Maybe it's an addiction you're trying to overcome. Maybe it's a relationship that you think is in the toilet and, and has no, no chance of survival. Maybe it's a dream that you have that you think will never happen. But I want you to think of something right now in your life, your personal life, that right now seems impossible and it could never happen. Everybody got one of those in their mind? I just want you to hold on to that, just store that somewhere in the back of your head, and we're going to come back to that at the end of the message. So look at Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 40. Now what we're going to read in these next 16 verses is a story about something that happened to Jesus, and it's, it's kind of unique in Scripture because two stories converge here into one story. Normally you read Scripture, there's like the story of Jesus healing a little boy, and that's that whole story. And then there's a story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and that's that whole story. Well, this one, we're going to have two of these things come together to make one big story. You'll see what I'm talking about as we read it. Luke 8, starting with verse 40, says this, and I'm just going to read a verse and then stop and talk about it. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. All right, where was Jesus returning from? Why were they expecting him? Jesus had gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee with his, with his guys, with his disciples. And while they were over there, there was a demon-possessed guy. Dude was crazy. He was, he was nude. He was living in the caves and cutting himself with rocks and screaming and hollering. They'd put chains on him, and he'd break the chains and all this kind of stuff. And so the guy comes out and confronts Jesus. Jesus cast demons out of the guy. And Anybody remember your Sunday school? What did he cast the demons into? 
pigs, right? He made demon pigs out of these, re- just, just regular pigs walking around minding their own business. All of a sudden they become demon pigs and they run down the, the hill and they drown themselves in the lake. And I've always wondered, just because I like barbecue, I'm wondering if anybody fished those I wonder if anybody fished those pigs out of the lake and tried to barbecue them up, you know, if they ate them, if they went crazy because they were demon pigs or whatever. So, so Jesus cast the demons out of this guy, and so now he's coming back from that. And it says that there was a crowd there waiting for him because they were expecting him. So evidently, word had gotten back. People had heard about what Jesus had done. So when this says a crowd was waiting for him because they were expecting him, these were like true fans of Jesus. And they, were, they could not wait to get a glimpse of him and see him. So we're talking about a big crowd of folks. And they were probably holding up signs, you know, Jesus won, demons nothing, and, you know, whatever, and, and going crazy and just being excited about who Jesus is and had on their Jesus T-shirts and, you know, fish decals on the back of their cars and all that stuff. And these were true Jesus fans. And there they were, waiting for Jesus to come back. So look at what happens in verse 41. Then... A man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, this guy Jairus, it says he was a ruler of the synagogue. This was an important guy. If you were a ruler of the synagogue, that means you not only were an important as far as religiously concerns, but in those days, you were an important person socially and politically as well. So for him to come to Jesus and see in the religious pecking order of things, he was actually above Jesus. Now we know that's crazy because Jesus was God, so he was really below Jesus. But in, in those days, if you were looking at it, you said, oh, synagogue ruler, some rogue teacher walking around that just teaches from time to time in the synagogue, this guy was above Jesus. So for him to come and fight his way through the crowd to get to Jesus and then fall down at his feet, he must have had an extremely great need for him to humble himself that much. And he did. It tells us that his little girl was dying. And those of you who are parents will know that if you had a dying child, there is probably no one's feet you wouldn't bow at in order to save that child. That's, that's just the way we feel as parents. We want to do whatever it takes for our kids. And so he was no different. He had heard about Jesus, probably had heard about the demons being cast out, thought this guy's got a chance to save my daughter. We don't know what she had, but it, she was very near death. And he came and he bowed at Jesus' feet. Now this is a little sidebar that doesn't have anything to do with the message, but I want you to know this. One day all of us will bow at Jesus' feet as well. And you can either do it now when you're on this earth and you can choose to bow at his feet the way Jairus did or one day you're going to do it when it's not going to be your choice and if you don't bow at his feet until then, until the day of judgment, if that's the first time you bow at his feet, it's not going to be a happy day for you. So all of us have to come to Jesus at some point humbly the way Jairus came at Jesus humbly today. So Jairus comes and he bows at Jesus' feet. A powerful man with a deep need. Then look at the rest of verse 42, what it says there. As Jesus was on his way, so he decided, I'm going to go and I'm going to help this guy. I'm going to go see his daughter. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there, verse 43, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now, what this was is this was a woman who for 12 years had, had continued to have her monthly cycle for 12 years. Non-stop, every day, 
365 days a year. Something that is supposed to last seven days out of a month maybe, for her it had gone on for 12 straight years. Now, ladies, you will know better than we will know, that's a physical problem. That's a very physical issue that caused her lots of pain, caused her lots of physical suffering. And Sherry and I were talking about the other day when, when we were talking about this, this today, and you know, Sherry said, you think about if that happened to a woman today, she would take iron pills and other things to try to replenish what she was losing from that loss of blood every day. In those days, they didn't have that. So I'm sure she was extremely weak. This was a dangerous situation for her physically, but... Even worse than the physical suffering that this woman went through, this was not just a physical issue. This was a social issue, and it was a religious issue. And here's why. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 15, in the Old Testament, when God gave the law to Moses, there are specific laws regarding a woman during that time of the month. And it tells us in Leviticus, chapter 15, in the law, that a woman during that time of the month is considered unclean. They are ceremonially unclean. Now, what does that mean? Okay, so they're unclean. Big deal. Here's what it means. If you are ceremonially unclean, you are not allowed to touch anyone else. You are not allowed to be around anyone else. And it also says in Leviticus chapter 15 that anything that she sat on, anything that she, if she laid down on a bed, if she sat down on a chair, that thing would become unclean. So no one would invite this woman to her house to have coffee, to their house to have coffee. No one would, if, if she had a husband, he probably has left her because he, she's unclean and he can't live with that day after day after day. And if you'll look in Leviticus chapter 15, look at Leviticus 15, 31. It says this about people who are unclean. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so that they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place. You must keep them separate. So here it is. This woman is a social outcast. So on top of the physical pain she's endured for 12 years, for 12 years she's probably lived alone. She's probably lived on the outskirts of town. And as a matter of fact, the very fact that she had gotten in the middle of this huge crowd to try to see Jesus, just being there was a sin that she could be stoned to death for. If someone had recognized her and said, wait a minute, this is the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, they could have picked up stones right then and killed her on the spot, and they would have been perfectly okay under the Jewish law to do that. So what does she do? Look at Luke 8, 44. She came up behind him, talking about Jesus, and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. I read this story a while back and thinking about today's message, and I was just writing notes down as I was thinking about that. And when I wrote, what I wrote down next to 44, I wrote this old Hebrew term. I wrote, wow. Actually, Hebrew is not, wow is not a Hebrew term. But I just put, wow. This is amazing to me. Because everywhere else in Scripture, when Jesus heals someone, he looks at them, he says something, he makes uh, mud out of his spit and the dirt in the ground. He touches, he takes his saliva and he touches a man's tongue and he can talk. There's always some type of interaction between Jesus and the person that's being healed, except for this story. And in this story, she walks up and she, it doesn't even say that she touched Jesus. She just touched what he was wearing. 
a cloak that he had bought at Walmart. Just kidding, they didn't have Walmart back then. But just any, just any old piece of, clo- piece of clothing that it had on. And as he touched her, as she touched that, not his flesh, as she touched that, immediately her bleeding stopped. What she had been suffering with for 12 years. Chances are, it could be that she had been suffering with this from the very time she reached puberty. So that for, for her entire adult life, she had had this ailment and that she had not been able to be around people. And immediately, just by touching the edge of the coat he was wearing, it was over with. She was healed and her life would never be the same and it would never go back to the way it was before. And so look at verse 45, what happens? Who touched me, Jesus asked. Now remember, there's a gigantic crowd there. When they all denied it, Peter said, Peter's always the one to speak up in these situations, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. I I imagine Peter's thinking, come on now, Jesus. You're smarter than that. Look at all these people. Everybody touched you. People are grabbing you all the time. That's just what goes on when you show up after you've healed people. But look at verse 46. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that, say this next word out loud with me, power. Say power with power, come on. I know that power has gone out from me. I want you to remember that word power. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. I know that power has gone out from me. So some, some way, and, and I don't understand how all this works, Jesus knew as soon as this woman touched his cloak, someone's been healed. This power, this amazing power that that I have because I'm the Son of God. Someone has just received some of that without me even knowing it was going to happen. Then in verse 47. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. Now remember, she could be killed for what she just did. For being in this crowd as an unclean woman, and not only that, for touching a religious leader, this is even worse. So I believe that when she came and fell at his feet, she had every, she thought to herself, this is it, I'm, I'm gone. But she knew it was time to fess up and just say, you know what, even if that happens, it's worth it because I just experienced this amazing healing. So she comes and fell at his feet, and in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then in verse 48, then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Your faith has healed you. See, that's why not everybody was being healed. There was all kind of people pressing in against Jesus and touching him. I'm sure there were other sick people there. It wasn't like everybody who touched Jesus that day was being healed. Or if if every time you touched Jesus, power went out from him, what if you didn't need to be healed? What if you were like a golfer? And you touch Jesus, and then all of a sudden you're Tiger Woods. Woo, this is amazing, you know. People would be crowding around him. You're a basketball player. You touch Jesus. Now you're Michael Jordan, whatever it is that happens. And so that's, that's not what was going on. It wasn't like Jesus was this power force that just walked around and, and arcs of power flew off of him. What made her touch different than the touch of everyone else was she had come to him in faith believing that if I can just get close enough, if I can just get close enough just to touch, I don't even have to touch him if I can just grab the hem of his pants, if I can just grab onto the edge of his coat, that will be enough. And it was because of that faith, it was because of that belief that she had, according to Jesus, he said, your faith has healed you. Her belief that no matter what else had gone on in her life, if she could just touch him, it would be enough. So we started another story. Remember that other story about this guy with a sick daughter? 
Any of you ever used to watch Super Friends as a kid? And it would say, meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, and it would go back. So, so now we're going to go back to the first story, because here Jesus was, he was on his way somewhere else. And this woman came and got healed and interrupted all this stuff. So look at what happens in verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. So now, Jesus was taking time with this woman, and in the meantime, this little 12-year-old girl who was going to see has died. And when the, when the person who came with the message says, don't bother the teacher, that, he felt the way most of us feel. Because in his mind, death was final. That was it. Look, when she was sick, Jesus could have done something about it. I understand. I heard about the demons and all that stuff. But now she's dead. It's over. Tell him, tell him not to worry about making the trip over here. Because nobody can do anything about death. And, and, you know, I, in those days, there were probably other stories about people who had had demons cast out, maybe from people even other than Jesus. And there were probably other stories about people being healed. So the folks walking around there thought, yeah, demons being cast out, woman being healed of bleeding for 12 years, that's one thing. But death is a totally different deal. There's no sense in him even showing up over at the house. But look at verse 50. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. I don't, it, it, we don't, it says in the story, it doesn't say anything about Jairus saying anything. I imagine if I'm Jairus, he was thinking something, which uh, in his grief, probably one of the things I would have been thinking if I was Jairus, I would have been thinking, you know what, Jesus, if you hadn't taken time to talk to this unclean woman, you could have been there in time to heal my daughter, and now she's dead. And maybe that's what he was thinking. And if he was thinking that, Jesus knew that. And Jesus looked at him and said, listen, don't worry about that. Don't be afraid. What did he say, though? Just what? Believe. What was it that caused the woman to be healed? It said that it was her faith. Jesus said, your faith has healed you. So Jesus looks at Jairus and he says, listen, if you will believe, if you will have enough faith, just like this woman did, if you will believe, we're going to go to your house and something amazing is going to happen. But you need to believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. I love that he says she will be healed there instead of she will be raised from the dead even though that's what he was planning on doing because in Jesus' mind, death is no different than the woman he just healed or the demons he cast out. Death is just one more little thing that can be healed, that he can take care of. If you will believe, she will be healed. Then look at verse 51. This is where the story really looks good. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Before I read the rest of that verse, now imagine this, imagine this scene here. You've got Jesus, and he's got this big crowd with him, right? And, he, and they're all following him because they're excited about what's going to happen, and I'm sure they're saying, man, you're not going to believe this. There's a girl in here. She's dead. Jesus is going to go in. He's not even afraid of a dead person because back in those days, a dead person was also unclean. So Jesus, as a, as a synagogue ruler, or not a synagogue ruler, but as a synagogue teacher, he shouldn't go into the house where something unclean is because it would make him unclean. But they're like, Jesus doesn't care, man. He's going in there. He's going in with that dead girl. So all these people, they're all excited. And it kind of reminds me, remember, and maybe girls, y'all probably weren't like this, but guys, I know you were. When you were in school, remember when there was going to be a fight, man? You were going to be there. 
And I can remember in the ninth grade, there was this guy in my class, this guy named James and another guy named Mark, biblical names. These two guys didn't act very biblical that day. And, uh, and, and they had some words during P.E., and it was like, dude, it's going to be on. And so after, after it was over with, we followed them, and I followed, and I had a class all the way back down at the end of the school where P.E. was. I followed them all the way up to the other end of the school, and James is walking behind Mark, calling him names and all this kind of stuff. And next thing, next thing you know, Mark, and they're fighting in the hallway. There's a big crowd, and we're going, Whoa! going crazy and all this stuff until the teachers come and break it up. But it was one of those things when you were in school, or at least when I was in school, if, if we heard there was going to be something exciting, we weren't going to miss it. And so we were going to follow. It didn't matter how far we had to go. And so that's kind of, except this was a good thing, that's kind of what was going on there. These folks are following behind Jesus. Man, forget going to work today. Forget the fact that I'm walking way out of the realm of where my house is. I'm going to go see what's happening. So Jesus has got this crowd of people. And what do they come up on? They come up on a funeral visitation. They come up on another crowd of people at the house. And it says they were wailing for this child. How many of you have been to a funeral visitation? It's not very fun, is it? I've never heard of anybody going to a funeral visitation and say, man, that was awesome. I hope I get to go to another one of those next week. Nobody likes to go to a funeral. You go to a funeral visitation because you want to be there for the person, but you're sad, and they're sad, and it's a sad scene, and it's bad news. And so you've got this excited crowd showing up, coming up to this crowd that they're mourning, and, and they think that it's over because death is the final thing. And look what Jesus says. I love this. In verse 52, after it says, all the people were wailing and mourning for her, does Jesus walk up and say, I'm sorry about your loss? No, he says, stop wailing. It's almost like Jesus said, look, you're killing the buzz here, man. I'm about to go in. You know, we're gonna, something awesome's about to happen. I'm going to go in. This thing should be a party. And y'all are crying. This is nothing to cry about. He says, stop wailing. She is not dead, but asleep. And then in verse 53, they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. Why did they laugh? Because they knew death was it. Death was final. They weren't in the excited crowd. They were in the mourning crowd. They didn't, maybe they didn't know about the demons. Maybe they didn't know about the 12 years of bleeding healed. Maybe they didn't, if they did, they probably didn't even care because this was it. This was death. This was different. And then in verse 54, but he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. The reason he told them not to tell anyone what had happened, that's a whole issue that you see a lot of times in Scripture where Jesus didn't want people to know who he was too soon because he knew they were going to try to kill him. But all of a sudden, here was this child that no longer was sick but was dead. And everything was over with. And Jesus comes in and just with just one sentence, my child, get up. She's back to life. And then there was no doubt for everybody there. The crowd that was there that was excited, the crowd that was there that was wailing and mourning, all of them knew this guy is the son of God. This guy has something that nobody else has because we have seen something that we will never, ever forget. Now look back at verse 46 of Luke 8 that we just talked about. What did Jesus say there? I know that power has gone out from me. You want to spend all day in the Bible, which, don't be honest about that, all right? Some of y'all say, no, Cliff, I really don't. If you did, 
If you wanted to spend all day in the Bible, let me tell you what, uh, what you could do. Go through the Scripture and find everywhere in there that the word power or powerful is used in describing God or describing Jesus. It's all over the place. All through the Old Testament. All through the New Testament. God is described as a powerful God. God is described as, 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 uh, with, in terms of power all through it. And in the New Testament, John the Baptist said that Jesus was coming and he would come with power. Also, in the New Testament, when they talked about Jesus, it talked about him having power to heal. All through the Scripture, it talks about Jesus being a powerful, powerful God. It talks about how one day he's going to return with power. And then in the, in the book of Acts, which is the first part, the story about the beginning of the church, I want to read you a few verses out of the book of Acts. Acts 1.8, Jesus said this, some of his final words on earth. But you will receive what? Say it with me. You will receive power. Say it with me. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is saying when the Holy Spirit comes, you are going to be a powerful people. Then look at Acts 4.33. This is talking about what happened after Peter and John the Baptist did some miracles. And then it says in verse 33, with great, say it with me, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. Then look over at Acts 9, 22. This is talking about Saul who would eventually have his name changed to Paul. And after God changed his life, look what it says about Saul in verse 22. Yet Saul grew more and more, say it with me, powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And then look at Acts 19.20. And this is kind of like a final statement about what was going on in the churches that Jesus had started all over the world at that time. And it says in Acts 19.20, In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Let me ask you a question. People that know you, they don't have to know you're a follower of Christ or not. Would they describe you as powerful? Would somebody say, yeah, that's a, that's a powerful woman. That's, and I'm not talking about smell here, all right? Some of you, whew, man, you smell powerful. Get away from me. Would they describe you as powerful? Would they say, that's a powerful guy? That guy, his life, I see power in him. And here's a, here's a better and more telling question. What about this church and all of God's churches? Does the world today see the church as powerful? What do the people at Fox News and MSNBC think about the church? Do they think it's powerful? Or do they think it's just a voting block? You see, according to the scripture, we are powerful. You are powerful. Every single one of us, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a powerful person. We can be powerful, and we should be powerful, and the reason why is because God is powerful, and you serve a powerful God. Now, you ready for your one point today? This is the one point. Write it down, memorize it, whatever you want to do. Your potential, if you are a follower of Christ, your potential is unlimited because God's power is unlimited. Your potential is unlimited because God's power is unlimited. So what does that mean? And when I say unlimited, I really mean unlimited. One of the things we do is we see limits. We set limits for ourselves. We see limits in everything. 
Well, we would do that if this wasn't going on. Well, we can't do that because of this. We would like to do that as a church, but we can't do that. I would like to start this at my business, but I can't do that. And we, all we do is we see limits. And God is there saying, listen, I'm an unlimited God, and you are limiting yourself. You should be a powerful person. You have unlimited potential to do way more than you've ever thought about you could do because God is an unlimited God. You see, the same Jesus that cast demons out of a guy that had been suffering with that from years and the same Jesus that raised a girl from the dead and the same Jesus that stopped a woman's bleeding after 12 years and she was hopeless, he is the same Jesus you serve today and he is just as unlimited in power today as he was back then. And the only limit to God's power is our belief. That's the only thing that limits it. What did Jesus say to the woman? Your faith has healed you. What did he say to Jairus? Believe and she will be healed. If God's not doing something powerful in our lives, it's because we don't believe he can. It's because we have lost faith that he truly is a powerful God. So if God is so powerful, what are we supposed to do? I'll tell you what, we're supposed to think big. We're supposed to make outlandish plans. We're supposed to try things that everybody else says is impossible. And if somebody says to you, you're being stupid, there's no way that can happen. You can refer them to Ephesians 3.20, which says this, one of my favorite verses of Scripture. It says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Let me tell, help you understand what that means. It says that imagine something right now. You can imagine anything. It says God is able to do immeasurably more than that. In other words, the biggest, greatest thing that I can imagine God doing in my life, God can do something so much bigger than that that I can't even measure it. And it says the reason he can do that is not because I'm a great guy, not because everybody likes me or not because I'm good looking or have money or have athletic ability or any of that kind of stuff. The reason God can do that is because his power is at work within me and his power is at work within you. Whatever it is that you can imagine that you want God to do, you imagine you want God to do through you and for you and in your life, he can do even more than that because his power is at work with you, within you. Maybe you're saying, Cliff, I don't feel very powerful. It doesn't have anything to do with how you feel. Maybe you feel bad because you ate some bad roast beef. Doesn't have anything to do with that. We let our feelings fool us all the time. So what you don't feel powerful? God is still powerful. So what you feel sick and limited? God is still powerful. God is a powerful God and his power is at work within you. And because of that, you can do that impossible thing I had you think about at the beginning of the message. Whatever that was. You can do that. God can do that through you. You can do that impossible thing. You can overcome your addiction because God is powerful. You can share Jesus with your friends at work because God is powerful. You can lose weight if you need to because God is powerful. You can start your own business because God is powerful. You can lead a life group even though you say, I could never do that. You can because God is powerful. You can get out of debt because God is powerful. You can be delivered from sexual sin because God is powerful. You can live by the Bible, even the stuff that seems crazy and nobody else does that because God is powerful. You can discipline your kids instead of letting them run the household. Why? Because God is powerful. You can go to school tomorrow in a public school and you can publicly let everybody know that you're a follower of Jesus and that he's changed your life. Why can you do that? Because God is powerful. You can save your marriage that's on the rocks, that y'all hate each other, you're sleeping in separate bedrooms, you're 
separated, sleeping in different houses, you can save that marriage. Why? Because God is powerful. You can give sacrificially because God is powerful. You can make a bigger impact on the people around you because God is powerful. You can be a part of a church that sees thousands of people across Greenville County and Spartanburg County come to know Jesus and give their lives to him because God is powerful. You can do all of those things, not because you're a great person, but because a powerful God is at work within you. Do you believe it? That's the question I want you to go home with today. Do we really believe what this book says? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for making the promises that you give us in Scripture. That you can do more than, than I can imagine, and I can imagine some pretty big things. And the Scripture tells us that you can do immeasurably more than that because you are a powerful God. And God, even, even as I read the story about a 12-year-old girl coming back to life just by you saying some words, it just overwhelms me. And I want to live with that kind of power every day. And I know that each person in here does as well. And so, Lord, I pray that your power would fall on us, that we would believe it, that we would have faith, faith that could heal us, faith that could help us overcome addiction. And that faith would be completely and totally resting in you. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Thank you for his sacrificial death for me, for each person here. And we want to walk out of here today encouraged and excited about what you want to do in our lives. Thank you, God, for being powerful. Thank you for working your power through us. In Jesus' name, amen.